My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll do it with my friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You stray, you lose. That's the defining feature of this market, because if you stray from a small portion of the tech complex, you are going to be destroyed. Today, very difficult. Dow shed 51 points. S&P ended up uh, 0.07%. NASDAQ advanced 0.32%. There it is again. We spent a huge amount of time talking about a very narrow group of winners, some of which you might be lucky enough to own. Information technology sector up 34.8% for the year, led by, yes, NVIDIA, the king, up 174%. AMD up 93%. Salesforce up 65%. The communication services sector up 32%, this time driven by a handful of winners like Meta Platforms up 118%. Alphabet up 40%. Netflix up 33%. Third, there's the consumer discretionary group. That's rallied 19%. It's led by Tesla up 63% for the year. It's a who's who of artificial intelligence and friends of cornucopia of, of companies that benefit from extremely fast semiconductors. Just a small smattering of winners amid a host of losers. In short, this is indeed the subterranean homesick market because you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Yes, it is that narrow. And that's why I want to break, break out. I want to do something very different from what you heard all day. Today I want to focus on uh, n- not just the winners, but the losers. The losers, the raggedy rest to show you what happens when you do stray from tech and what you end up in. More important, explain why so many sectors have become minefields. Let's go through the S&P 500 sector by sector. Energy is the worst performing group. It's down 11%. Easy to understand why. Both oil and natural gas prices have been obliterated this year, including one more horrific day today. So, of course, the fossil fuel stocks have been killed. It would be weird if they weren't. Apache down 31%. Halberton down 24%. Devon down 24%. Next, the utilities, which do poorly when interest rates go higher because they tend to be dividend stocks, and these dividends now look less attractive versus bonds. Utilities are off 9% for the year on average, led by AES, distribution company, down 31%. Dominion, a traditional utility, down 18%, worried about the dividend. Eversource, another utility in the Northeast, down 19%. Normally, the utilities are terrific recession-proof stocks, but if you invested like the Fed's going to throw us into a recession, as so many say, you've been crushed in these stocks. Healthcare, ooh, right in the crosshairs of the government. Down 7% for the year. Oregon on led the way. That's the woman's health spin-off from Merck. It's off an astounding 31% for the year. Then there's the great Moderna down 28%. Hey, post-COVID hangover. CVS, same problem. Off 28%. So much for its diversification and other forms of health care beyond the pilferage-cursed drugstore chain. I'm actually shocked that the financials are only down 6.5% for the year, given that the regional banks have been disastrous. Comerica down 44%. Key Corp down 43%. Zions off 41%. These are all casualties of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic. This group is so bad, you ought to wonder if they can even bottom when the Fed finishes tightening. So far, the only financials reflect, they only re- reflect the, the bad, not any good. And so the yields are unsafe. Their earnings are clouded by supposedly inevitable recession. Though that recession never seems to arrive, despite the Fed's endless rate hikes. Waiting for Godot's situation. Real estate, off 3.5%, heavily influenced by the persistence of remote work. Big office building owner, Boston Properties, down 28%. Alexandria Real Estate, off 23%. And then a host of others jockeying for third, too close to call. 
It's another cursed group made even more painful because the real estate investment trusts used to have trampolines of high yields underneath them. But with interest rates so high, especially on the short end, those dividends offer very little protection. What can I say? Businesses just don't need as much office space as they did before COVID. Not with so many people working from home a day or two every week. Next, we have the consumer staples. They're down 3%. Archer Daniels Midland, agricultural processing company, falling 23%. You think Archer Daniels would benefit in an environment with so much inflation. But when you drill down, the worst inflation is in housing and wages. Everything else has cooled, in some cases, dramatically. Then there's Estee Lauder, which we own for the charitable trust. Has them good lately because their fortunes are linked with China. China's been a disastrous theme, as the reopening's gone much slower than expected. Finally, there's Walgreens, down 20%, which is frantically trying to imitate CVS's decision to go all healthcare, not just pharmacy. Horrendous results so far. To be fair, it's not like it's not liking their plans. You know, look, they can't do any better than CVS. Then there's the material sector, down 2.7%. That's led by CF Industries, a fertilizer stock, off 27%, followed by the once pristine international flavors and fragrances, which have been decimated by bad management, causing its stock to fall 25%. And then there's another fertilizer play, Mosaic, which has lost 24% of its value. The FERTs, as they're known in the business, have been stalwarts of the great agricultural boom that occurred when Russia invaded Ukraine, right back of Europe. 13% of the world's calories went offline. Once the ag supply chain got sorted out, though, the group collapsed. Finally, we've got the accursed industrials. They're off 3.5%. The worst is a company called Lidos. That's a government consultant that many consider to be a very smart defense company, down 25%, thanks to fears that there might be defense cuts in the debt ceiling deal. Next is 3M, which is two giant lawsuits against it, causing it to fall 20%. 3M's fabled dividend aristocrat status hasn't deterred sellers. And then there's Northrop Grumman, also off 20, almost 20%. That, too, is about the budget deal, not what well, I call it the non-deal, with investors fleeing from defense contractors for fewer spending restraints. Now, when we look back at the first five months of the year, we can only conclude that if you wandered away from the very small part of tech that's a funnel, you underperformed. All of this is to say that 2023 is the turbocharged opposite of last year. The market's so narrow that if it weren't for chat GPT and the recognition of what artificial intelligence could be worth, the averages might be having a terrible year. As it is tech so strong that it's allowed the S&P 500 to rally 9.5%, even as not much else is working. In fact, if you looked at an equal weighting of the S&P, where the return on every stock has the same contribution to the index's performance, you'd, you'd have a down year, down 0.35%. It's arguably the best year if you're a tech investor or the worst year if you're concentrated in anything else. It's so bad that you have to wonder if this disparity can really continue. We trimmed some tech this morning for the Travel Trust. You can look at our reasoning by joining the CNBC Investing Club, and I urge you to do so. The bottom line, we just feel too darn greedy not to take any profits in tech. That said, though, straying from tech might continue to be the kiss of death in this market. At least until we get a cooling in the trillion-dollar colossus that is NVIDIA the undisputed leader of 2023. Tyler in California. Tyler. Hey, Big Booyah from California. How are you doing, Jim? Booyah, back at you, Tyler. What's going on? Uh, real quickly, I'd like to give a shout-out to my son, Landon. Daddy loves you. My question is regarding Salesforce, CRM, going into earnings. How's it looking? Okay, I think that Salesforce has a really bright future uh, because of uh, of what's known as Einstein, which is their uh, predictor 
uh, that uses a lot of artificial intelligence. So I actually think that even if it isn't good, I'd like to add to the position that we sold if it gets really hit. We have a nice position in the Chapel Trust. I still expect good things out for the year. Let's go to Mike in Illinois. Mike. Hey, Jim. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm calling in regards to Portillo's. I'd like to know your opinion on whether or not the stock is worth buying. All right. Sure. I mean, look, I'm going to give you two answers. One, the company is worth investing in. But two, the shareholders who were part of a a private equity, uh, private going public, have decimated the stock. They've got to stop selling. They have to. That stock could be at 30 if they would just stop selling. Look, straying from tech might continue to be the kiss of death in this market. We still get a cooling in the trillion-dollar colossus that is NVIDIA, the undisputed leader of 2023. On Mad Tonight, last week, while all eyes were on Kramer fave NVIDIA, there was another semiconductor player that wowed Wall Street with the AI plans. Don't miss my exclusive with Marvell Technology. Learn more about what's in their pipeline as the stock continues to be on, on pace to have its best month since 2001. Then, I've been telling you that I think there's a good chance that Wall Street's being too negative here. So where should we go to get a read on the prospect for economic growth? I'm going off the charts on a precious metal that's not as precious. It's more of an industrial metal. And HP reported after the close. And with a host of headwinds facing the PC market, how did the company fare this quarter? I'm getting the latest from the CEO, and it's not what you expect. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Everybody's still talking about last week's amazing blowout quarter from NVIDIA. But you should know there's another semiconductor company that put a great quarter last week and saw its stock soar. I'm talking about Marvell Technology, which makes chips for AI, cloud computing storage, the data center, 5G networks, and even the auto industry. When Marvell reported last Thursday, Magic gave very bullish guidance on AI, saying it's a $400 million opportunity this year and then an $800 million opportunity next year. And that's based on real orders and real prospects. You can understand why Marvell's stock shot up 32% on Friday. Can it keep running? Let's check in with Matt Murphy. He's the president and CEO of Marvell Technology. Get a better read on the quarter. And what's next? Mr. Murphy, welcome back to Man Money. Yeah, Jim, hey, thanks for having me back. Appreciate uh, it. So, Matt, this was a rather uh, astonishing quarter and an amazing conference call. And I'll, I'm going to give you the floor to explain it because there are a lot of people who seem confused in the call. You made a couple acquisitions. You may not have thought that what could happen did happen. You even gave it a a forecast that was much below what only happened. But things changed rapidly. And your acquisitions turned out to be brilliant in retrospect. Uh, Tell us about that, because it really has changed the company dramatically. Sure. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's great to be on. And if you think about it, um, the story that really got a lot of attention and people excited was uh, our story about AI. And if you go back, actually, in 2019, we did an acquisition of a spin-out of Global Foundries, which was prior IBM, called Avera, which got us custom uh, chip design uh, technology in a team that knew how to do large-scale custom compute ASICs. Uh, In 2020, we acquired Infi, 
which had excellent technology for optical interconnect for data centers, both in AI clusters as well as in traditional cloud infrastructure. So these have been years in the making. We always knew that AI was an important application within the cloud. Our view historically was that was one of many exciting things that we were working on. But I would say since December, with the release of ChatGPT from OpenAI, everything changed. And so really the big reveal and the big discussion in our call last week was that we quantified the amount of revenue that Marvell was getting from AI. And the numbers are pretty big. They're much bigger than people thought. It was about $200 million last year. Uh, we said it was going to at least double this year and then at least double again next year. And I think that insight that we provided to investors uh, was, was quite helpful and encouraging and, and probably better than, than people thought. Well, what kind of compound uh, annual growth rate is that? Well, if you take 2023 to 2025, our fiscal years, which would be calendar 22 to 24, that would be 100% compounded growth rate. If you went back to calendar 21, uh, the, the, the revenue was like sub 50 million. So it would even be a higher growth rate actually off of 21. So it's growing quite nicely. And quite frankly, there's a lot of upside potential to this because things are moving so fast especially since January, February, as the AI momentum has taken off and we see cloud capex spending, you know, moving more and more towards AI from traditional cloud infrastructure, they've got to make room in the budget. And our content opportunity is significantly larger in these AI systems versus traditional cloud infrastructure. Both are great opportunities, but AI can be bigger. Well, how much of that is because the current is really 95% CPU, 5% graphical GPU, and it's going to flip entirely, which uses a huge amount more uh, uh, of, of space, basically, of what you need. Yeah, that dynamic is uh, finally getting understood. In traditional cloud infrastructure, uh, CPUs, and traditional processors were the main form of compute with accelerated computing being a smaller portion. And I said in my prepared remarks last week on uh, Thursday that that was basically inverting, okay, 180 degree shift. And so the bulk of the opportunity now in AI systems is accelerated computing with, with uh, the standard processors being more for control. That creates a big opportunity for Marvell on our custom side but it also just drives tremendous amount of computing power, which then requires high-speed networking technology and connectivity technology done in the optical domain. And that's really where we shine, both on the networking side, but also emerging in the custom compute side. I don't mean to slight the others, because I know there's much that is going, that is troughing and going higher. But uh, your outgoing chairman, Rick Hill, who is a friend of mine and my family's, did either he or you ever think that in the last four months, this true bonanza could be upon you? Well, I think, uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning Rick. He's our chairman of the board. He helped recruit me into the company uh, seven years ago. Uh, he's going to be retiring, by the way, Jim. I think uh, you and I have talked about that in, uh, in, in, at the June meeting. Uh, what a career for Rick, uh, a true industry legend, and tying it back to the opportunity in front of us, Quite frankly, Rick has always been an optimist, and he's a technologist by nature, and he's been lockstep with me and the management team on everything we've been doing. So 
while maybe the magnitude of the change has happened, I mean, Rick's, Rick's a visionary, right? So he's, he's, uh, none of this is surprising, but maybe just the speed at which it's happening. But, uh, you know, he's been there shoulder to shoulder with the management team, uh, really having our back since day one. And so we, we helped build this company, uh, you know, to, to address what we call the data infrastructure opportunity. Seven years ago, we started, and look where it ended up, Jim. Well, I mean, Matt, basically, are, you have AI infrastructure as the biggest opportunity. But are they going to spend? That's, uh, that's are existed. these companies going to spend? The big companies that we need to see spend, are they going to turn it on? Because Marvell's going to get a lot of it. Oh, it's it's already turned on. I mean, you can see that from from uh, you know our our friends over at Nvidia, which had an absolute blowout guide right. for next quarter. Uh, we see the capex plans shifting. Uh, meaningfully inside these companies as they uh, prepare their own plans. I'm talking about the, the, the large cloud companies that we do business with. And so we're adjusting our plans as well because as AI scales, right, we have significant content in those systems. And so now it's really, uh, it's really a great opportunity sitting in front of us. And, and quite frankly, the, de- the demand shift, I said in, my, in the call last week, the backlog forecast and revenue outlook, even for this year, has gone up meaningfully, just in the last three months. And I think even on a daily basis, we're seeing just a tremendous amount of activity here, both on the current business, Jim, but also I would say on the design win pipeline and funnel of opportunities that we're addressing. So it's not just a one cycle thing. This is, I think, a multi-year opportunity for for us and and a a scarce few companies in the chip industry to participate. Okay, well, Matt, I want to congratulate you. And of course, Rick Hill, your outgoing chairman. Rick's done an amazing job. Matt Murphy, president and CEO of Marvell. MRVL, the move is for real. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on Mad Money. Yeah, thanks, Jim. You heard what he just said. These are, look, it's just breakthrough. Okay, it's breakthrough. Let's leave it at that. Mad Money's back in the break. Coming up, is copper a showstopper? Kramer goes off the charts on a metal that's heating the kettle next. Even though we've got a hope for deal on the debt ceiling, at least in theory, the fact remains that economic pessimism is rampant. Hardly anyone believes in the U.S. economy because any sign of strength is just seen as another reason for the Fed to keep tightening ultimately perhaps throwing us into a recession. We're worried about China, too, especially now that they've got this terrifying new wave of COVID. Though the Communist Party seems reluctant to lock everything down again. Still, China growing at low single digits? Hard to believe, but true. Still, I think there's a good chance that Wall Street's too negative from here. Let me tell you why. Well, first, actually, I don't even want you to take it from me. Let's Let's go to the charts. Let's go to the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician who's the co founder of DeCarly Trading. She's the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. She's our resident commodity expert, and she's someone I completely believe in. Three weeks ago, Garner told us to ignore all the negative headlines, simply focus on the fact that we got a weaker dollar, which is very good for the stock market. Sure enough, wow, we are up nicely since then, even though the last few weeks have been, let's say, uh, full of some big picture misery. So now let's talk about the most important bellwether for global economic growth. And I like the story she's telling. I want to talk about copper. This is the metal you need for new construction, which is what makes it such a good barometer for the economy. After catching fire earlier this year, copper futures have now pulled back from $4.35 to $3.66. That's a vertical collapse for the red metal. Yet Garner's not discouraged by the recent sell-off. If anything, 
She thinks the same themes that allow Carpenter to work earlier this year, before the collapse, should only let it keep running. We've still got a weaker dollar. We've still got a decline in interest rates volatility, both of which are good for commodity prices. This is really important, guys, because I think a lot of people don't even pay attention to copper. That's a mistake. Take a look at the weekly chart of the copper futures. Although it's certainly complicated, all right? Garner points out that copper's been in an overall uptrend since early 2020, once we started getting over the COVID crash. Copper tested the lower end of this trading range back in the summer in the fall of last year, and now Garner says it's happening again. Based on both the trend line and the Twitter week moving average, she thinks copper's got a floor of support around $3.60. Right there, we're at it. All right, down a few cents from where it is, actually. For her, the floor represents the difference between a bull market in copper and a bear market in copper. That said, if we get a temporary breakdown to below that key level, but only copper bounces back and puts in a weekly close above $3.60, she would still say bullish. We are at what I like to call the fulcrum level for this commodity. If the price of copper can't consistently hold above its 200-day moving average, then that's what we're looking at right here, okay? If it can't hold above this, well, then she says her bull thesis is wrong. We could get a quick probe down to $3.30, even maybe 3 bucks. That would be terrible. That said, she see that kind of pullback as a buying opportunity. Why? In large part because of the relative strength index. See, that's the RSI. That's an important momentum indicator down right here. Uh, it stands at 40, which is not quite an oversold reading, but it's definitely on the cooler side, which tells Garner that the bulk of the selling in copper might already be behind us. See, if it weren't, it'd be all the way up here. Okay. How about the shorter-term daily chart for the July copper futures? Even here, Garner sees signs that copper's due for a rebound. Based on the July contract, the trendline floor of support comes near 355, all right, right here, uh, down five cents from the floor in the weekly chart. While copper's currently trading below its 200-day moving average, Garner thinks that, that this could be a temporary breach. If copper can pivot and rebound above its ceiling resistance near 370, then vault over the 200-day moving average around 380, she says the resulting upward momentum could be enough to overwhelm the bears. At the same time, the relative strength index, well, that's tumbled all the way down to 30, but, and before rebounding is now trending higher. Okay, so bottom there and then going a little up a little bit. According to Garner, we saw similar action in the RSI in the middle of last year, right before we got a big rally. More important, check out this weekly chart of the copper futures with the CFTC's commitment of traders report data at the bottom. This shows the net future position of various groups of investors. Garner likes to watch the large speculators, the green line, Okay, that's all the way down here, because that category represents institutional money managers. Historically, when large speculators all crowd in on one side of a trade, they tend to be dead wrong, because any given move needs to convert new adherence or else it runs out of fuel. And it's important to find new adherence when virtually everybody already agrees with you. Right now, Garner points out that large speculators are net short, and that's what this shows you right here. They are net short uh, copper by a pretty substantial amount. That isn't necessarily a buy signal, but she thinks it both limits the potential downside and multiplies the potential upside if things go in the right direction. And again, we're betting against these people right here because they're leaning too far one way. Next, take a look at the seasonal chart of copper. You'll, you'll love this. It, it, now it does at any given point in the year historically. Carter points out that copper tends to find a low. In late June, okay, we know that's not that far from here, right? But the bigger up moves generally tend to come in the fall, 
Still, right now, the seasonal pattern is definitely on the side of the bulls. Now, why do we even care about copper prices? Again, this has always been an important bellwether commodity. Over time, copper can help you predict where the global economy is heading, and that matters to the stock market. If you take a look at the closing prices of copper futures and the SP futures over the last 180 days, they tend to close in the same direction about 60% of the time. In the past, the correlation was much stronger, though. But we're in a weird moment right now with the war in Ukraine and all central banks all over the world desperately raising interest rates to quash inflation. Still, take a look at this monthly chart of the S&P 500 futures in green and the copper futures in red. I thought this was really indicative of what what could happen here. Except for the period from 2014 to 2016, copper and the stock market generally move in the right same direction. Gardner also points out that while peaks in copper tend to be slowed away on the stock market, bottoms in copper either immediately proceed or almost directly coincide with bottoms in the stock market. When copper's bottom in the past, the S&P 500 is followed within three months or less. For example, when copper found its floor last year, uh, that was three months before the market bottom last October. Three months before the market bottom in 2009, we got a bottom in copper. If we're looking at a similar timetable this time, as long as copper holds above three bucks, Garner says stocks should either trade sideways or work their way higher because it's very rare for the S&P to go down while copper prices are hanging in there. Of course, lately, copper hasn't been doing that hot because China's a huge consumer. They buy roughly half the world's copper. And the Chinese reopening post-COVID hasn't been going as well as many people thought, including me. But as Garner sees it, Commodity traders got way too bullish into the China reopening. At this point, those exuberant speculators have mostly thrown in the towel. By the time they're done selling, Gardner thinks copper can start running again. And that's virtually, as we saw, within about 30 days. Here's the bottom line. The charges interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that copper could be in much better shape than you think. And if copper's ready to run, that's a very good sign for the seemingly beleaguered global economy and those who are betting on a worldwide recession. Dory in New York. Dory. Hi. Booyah. Booyah, Dory. What's up? How are you, Jim? I'm I'm good. How about you? I'm very good. I'm watching your show almost every day. Oh, thank you. And I have a question about the, the start with the... N-U-E, Nucor. Nucor. Okay. You know, let me take it from here. Here's the problem with Nucor. This is the best of the best steel company. But if we're going into recession, no one will want to own the stock, even as you and I both know it's a terrific stock. So what happens, and we own some of these uh, for our travel trust, is that you can't jump in ahead. You have to wait. It doesn't look like it has, uh, it looks like it's come down big from its top, right? Because it, it, it has been much higher. But the fact is, it was, even though it's at 182 and it's now at 133, it could go lower. I would wait until it goes lower to do some buying. How about Randy in Pennsylvania? Randy. Jim, booyah. Booyah. What's up? Jim, my late father and I watch your show all the time. It means a lot for me to be on the show. I want to oh, talk to you about gold and gold futures. And also, Fly Eagles Fly. We have sports talk here every Tuesday. This is the greatest day of my life. Sports talk and now speaking to you. Oh, you're way too kind. I, it takes my breath away. I mean, you know, this, we, got, we got a lot of soul searching. What am I still doing? Uh, and the answer is I'm doing it for you. That's what's happening. Now, uh, gold is problematic. You would think it'd be going up given the fact that we're supposed to be in such an inflationary role. But I, I, you know, that's what you buy as a hedge. But the fact is no one really knows what to do with gold these days. Uh, and we're not sure whether there's inflation, deflation, which is really rather remarkable. So people are just abandoning it. I don't. 
10% of a portfolio I believe should still be in gold. I've not changed since we started the show. And thank you for the kind words. They are really sensational, especially after the three-day weekend where we had a lot of soul searching. All right. The charts observed by Carly Garner suggest that copper prices could be getting ready for a big run. That is surprising. And it's a very good sign for the seemingly beleaguered global economy. Maybe it's not so beleaguered after all. Much more may have money ahead, including my post-earnings exclusive with HP. As I said at the top of the show, if you stray from tech in this market, you lose. So is there room in the tech space for a stock like HP? Oh, boy, we're going to talk to the CEO. Then today, NVIDIA became the first trillion-dollar semiconductor company. So what's the secret sauce that led one of my favorite stocks at the moment? No one's talking about it. I'm going to detail what's really happened. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. What do we make of these numbers from HP Inc., the iconic PC and printer maker? Here's a stock that's been on a roll this year. It's up 15%. Most of you figures that were close to working through that post-COVID PC glut, right? Now, tonight, HP reported a mixed quarter that was mostly better than feared. While their sales came in a tad light, they posted a $0.04 earnings beat off a $0.76 basis. Good operating margin. Excellent cash flow, which we care about tremendously with this company. Same time, management gave solid guidance for the current quarter. actually raised their full-year forecast. So let's take a closer look at Enrique Lourdes. He's the president and CEO of HP Inc. to learn more about the quarter and the outlook for the future. Mr. Lourdes, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here with you. Oh, it's great to see you, sir. Enrique, I don't know. Maybe I'm taking a liberty here, but I think it's time to call a bottom in the PC cycle. Well, I think is we are delivering on what we said we were going to do. During the first half, we reduced significantly channel inventory. And because of that, and because we expect to see normal seasonality from a demand perspective, we think that the second half is going to be significantly stronger than the first half and that we are going to see growth second half versus first half. So we are more positive about the PC business now. I want people to understand that's a very big call, Enrique. You are saying the second half will be very strong. Most people do not think that. Most people think it's just going to be okay. So you what, is it new products? Is it um, share take? What is driving HP, your view that HP second half is going to be so good? Well, it's, a, it's an overall market adjustment that we think is going to happen. If you look at the first half results, they were impacted by the reduction of channel inventory we and the industry have been driving. That channel inventory reduction is almost completed, so the impact on the second half will not be there. And at the same time, in the, same, in the second half, because of back to school, because of the holiday season, especially consumer demand will be stronger. And when we combine both things, let us believe that the second half will be stronger than the first half. Okay, so let's go a step further. Is it possible, you know, I'm an HP user, so I'm thinking, do I get a new one, do I get not a new one? AI, artificial intelligence, maybe a new chip, maybe a relationship with Microsoft, maybe my PC can do different things. Anything like that that could be driving a whole new cycle? I would say all of the things that you described. We think AI is going to be a, bring a great helper to the, big, to the PC business. It's going to help us to redefine what a PC is, the experiences that customers will be able to get are going to be much different. And we are working with all the key software vendors, with the key silicon providers to redesign the architecture of a PC. So we will be able to process locally 
all the AI applications that today are done in the cloud. Well, Probably it, will help, Jim, if yeah. I give you an example. Sure, please Imagine do. you need to design a new spreadsheet. When you were an analyst, you had to spend a lot of hours doing that work. Right. What you will be able to do in the future is you will be able to ask your PC, give me the analysis that I need to get. And the PC will create the spreadsheet for you. And once the work is done, you will be able to dialogue with your PC and ask for further interpretation, further analysis. What is going to be critical is that this work will be done both in the cloud, but if you have your private information, your confidential information, you want to do that locally. You don't want to upload that information to the cloud. For that, you will need an AI-enabled PC, which is what we are building with all our key partners. Well, I would think that you both need a new CPU, perhaps from AMD, and a change in the way Microsoft configures its programs, because current CPU and current Microsoft will not let us do that. You, you are exactly right. Both are the things, both of these things is what we need to change. And this is the work we are doing with Microsoft, with AMD, with Qualcomm, and many other silicon providers, because we think there is really an opportunity to create a new category of PCs that will drive significant refresh in the category. There are people who spend hours going over spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets, uh, that you make it sound like could be done in minutes. Or even shorter than in minutes. And this is just one of the applications that we are working on. There are many, many other applications where a similar impact will happen that is really going to help to create to bring new energy to the category. Well, I mean, let's say I want to get a reservation in a restaurant. Can I talk to my PC and it can book it? Eventually, it will, it will also happen. I have been in this industry for many, many years, Jim, and I have never seen an opportunity like this to really drive innovation and drive new type of customer needs that we really think are going to be fundamental. All right, so let me ask the obvious, which is do I have to wait around a couple of years for this to happen, or is this going to happen pretty soon? This is going to start happening in 2024, so a few quarters from now. And this will just be the beginning of a very big change that is going to continue for many, many years. In the meantime, I expect that you guys are ahead of the game. Perhaps you're even taking some share from others? Well, we have been gaining share during the last two quarters, especially in categories where we think there is margin opportunity, because our goal is not to grow share by the sake of, gaining, of growing share is all about profitable growth. And for example, this quarter, we regained the number one position in the commercial PC market, which as you know, is more profitable than consumer. And we really are pleased with the progress we have made. Well, I gotta tell you, when I hear all this stuff about AI, I practically wonder when can the consumer benefit? It always seems so business to business. It's obvious that that is completely wrong. My view is wrong. The consumer is going to benefit very, very soon. Thank you for explaining that to us because it's a very big thing, Enrique. That's why I'm always so happy to see you on the show. Very good to see you, Jim. Thank you. And I hope you saw how excited we are about the opportunities that we see that are really going to continue to drive the company forward. Well, you make me excited, too. And it's substance that makes me excited. That's Enrique Lourdes, president of HP Inc. Think about the future, people. Think about the future. It's huge. Man, money's back at the Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round, next.
And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski deck. Time for the lightning round. Everybody, let's start with Alex in California. Alex. Dr. Kramer. No, from What's up? Jim. Jim, I'm thinking of spending a couple of hundred dollars in the bowling alley. It's considered discretionary spending. So with negative price to earnings ratio and a potential recession coming up later this year or next year, are you still recommending the stock of Bolero? Well, the, the stock, I mean, candidly, I did not see the issues coming. There were some management issues, but I did not think that business uh, on a weather basis got bad in California that it would hurt their sales so much. It's rather dramatic. I'd like them to come on the show and we can answer the questions that way. That's the best way to do these things. Let's go to Andrew in California. Andrew. Uh, hey, Jim. What are your thoughts on Corteva? I happen to be bullish on that one, but it's going to be long-term. Why long-term? Because the ag market is very soggy right now, but I think it can make a comeback, and that's the best way to play it. I need to go to Jim, North Carolina. Jim. Hey, Jim. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How about you, sir? Good, thanks. Hey, I have a core holding that's been a complete disaster. It's probably hitting new lows as we speak. What can you tell me about Bristol-Myers? Boy, people have given up on the drug stocks. They really have. And Bristol is part of that complex. I am not going to give up on Bristol Myers because things are never so rosy that you can't have a drug stock in your portfolio. And that's a darn good one. I need to go to Troy in North Carolina. Troy. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Um, I'm wanting to get your insight into the company Tell Us. You know, look, good yield, it's, it's kind of like a lot of the other telco companies. The only one I really like is not the yield income company. I, I, I like T-Mobile. I think that T-Mobile has, the, has by far the best growth, and that's what I like when it comes to uh, investing in technology. T-Mobile is my thing. And, wow, it's nice off the high, too. Let's go to John in New Jersey. John. Good evening, Mr. Kramer, the money tamer. Booyah, how are you? Money tamer. I like that. I'm going to tell my wife about that tonight. She needs, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll talk generically. What's going on? Jim, I purchased Verizon back in August 2022. I spent a quarter million dollars for 5,200 shares. Uh, What's going on? Okay, it's the growth. The growth isn't there. Um, people are worried about the dividend. I'm not as worried about the dividend. I don't see the great growth. The growth is coming from T-Mobile. Uh, let's go to Aaron, Illinois. Aaron. Hi, Jim. Hey, I'm on the show. I just wanted to know about ticker AOS. Okay, when you're starting to talk about just plain vanilla heating, ventilation, uh, thermostats, boilers, that is a terrific kind of play. But I'm telling you, I, I see that, and I'll race it with Carrier, where I really like the acquisition that they're doing over in Europe. Now I'm going to Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve. Hey, Jim. Greetings from Cheltenham, Pennsylvania, right oh next to the stomping ground. Yes, that's an that old rival of Springfield High School, Montgomery County. How can I help you? <laughs> we used to beat you guys like a drum. Yeah, hey, Jim, you that, made no, a lot of money. That's totally untrue. We, we repeatedly crushed you. I, that's oh, never happened. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. You made me a lot of money in the healthcare insurers. What's going on with Centene? Okay, I think Centene, first of all, the healthcare business as well, I mean, it's being killed by the government. But also, Mr. Nidor passed away, who ran that company so well. So it's very hard for me to judge it without Mr. Nidor. That's just the way I look at it. Let's go to Gene in Ohio. Gene. Hey, Professor Kramer. Yes. This is Gene in Dublin, Ohio, home of the oh, Memorial Golf Tournament, the golf capital of the world this week. 
and my also, stock Wendy's is too. FMCI. Yeah. Oh Super my God! Okay, this, Inc. Look, no, they, they, you know, this is the hot server company that everybody likes. I am not going to recommend that stock up here. Now, I'm sure there are people who say, how can you not get on board? No, I, have so, I like so many tech companies. I can't get on board that one. It's just too high. John in New York. John. Hello. Hey, John, what's up? What's going on? Uh, hey, John you tell me. Long Island, New York. I just have a question. Um, with banks and rising interest rates, um, what do you think about Upstart? Okay, Upstart, AI, Upstart uh, is a short squeeze, plain and simple. It's not doing that well. It's like Carvana not doing that well. doesn't matter. It's being shorted, Wayfair, and they're rallying. And that, ladies and gentlemen, good of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, there's plenty of wisdom to be had from a modern-day Da Vinci. The CEO of the first trillion-dollar semiconductor company speaks. And Kramer's listening next. Remember, either you're running for food or you're running from becoming food. And oftentimes, you can't tell which. Either way, run! That's what the most important person in technology, Jensen Wong, had to say at his commencement address at National Taiwan University this weekend. As is usual for the man who turned NVIDIA into the first trillion-dollar semiconductor company, the speech was all about humility. He talked about NVIDIA's three brushes with doom, a bad bet on gaming console contract, a 3D graphics mistake, a bold move into mobile phones that was quickly abandoned because wireless chips are too commoditized. His takeaway? You cannot be afraid to fail. He told NTU grads to run, not walk, but also be prepared to stumble. He's optimistic about what's ahead. A 10-year cycle made equivalent to the beginning of the Internet. That optimism is backed by real orders and real revenue with a forecast 50% more than Wall Street was looking for in the next quarter alone. That is just staggering. The biggest forecast lift I've ever heard, and I've heard a lot of them in my time. While the skeptics might say NVIDIA's trillion-dollar valuation is ridiculous, we know that companies from a host of industries, advertising, autos, Internet, gaming, among others, all want his super expensive H100 graphics cards, and they want them now. These cards are like gold if you need incredibly fast computing power to handle generative AI, something with the capacity to make many businesses more efficient and, by the way, only invent trillions of dollars in new industries that we can't even comprehend or dream of now. Jensen's adamant that AI will end up creating more jobs than it destroys, but this is a show about investing, and as investors, it doesn't really matter either way. Now, I voiced a little skepticism this weekend in a piece for the investment club, skepticism about the business, given that so few of the executives I met at the CNBC CEO Summit in Santa Barbara are actually using NVIDIA's highest-end products. They seem more fearful of it than excited about it, fearful their competitors will have, and they won't. I think they're right to be worried. NVIDIA's graphic cards are what allows AI to run efficiently. The same goes for network engineering and cloud infrastructure. Nobody else comes close. That may not sound super exciting to you, but these products, which when bundled for strength can cost hundreds of thousands dollars are for the enterprise, not for you, not for the consumer. They're not meant to be exciting, like using Amazon to buy things or using Google search or grabbing the next iPhone from Apple. Very few consumers could afford even one of NVIDIA's highest-end graphics cards. And what would you do with it? This is hardware that enables things behind the scenes. 
That's why it's so hard for people to accept that NVIDIA could possibly be this big. If you're a consumer, this company's invisible to the naked eye. To the extent regular people interact with NVIDIA, it's gamers buying consumer-level graphics cards to soup up their computers. But the growth potential here is much smaller than the enterprise business I'm talking about. I feel fortunate because I've liked NVIDIA for ages, and we've owned it for the Chapel Trust for years. I even renamed my dog after NVIDIA when I came back from a visit to the company's headquarters. I've seen the greatest of generative AI in person before anyone else even cared about it. I'm constantly blown away by what NVIDIA can do with gaming hardware, the lifelike nature of the characters. I've seen them create my doppelganger. I've even talked to him courtesy of Jensen himself. I call him Da Vinci because he's both a visionary and a renaissance man. Frankly, we may never see anything like this NVIDIA rally again in our lifetime. But in the end, Jensen's not about winning or about wealth creation. He's about being a good person. He's about staying humble. Hmm. Maybe that's why so many investors don't seem to know about NVIDIA. They're just not promotional enough. Jensen's running, but being prepared to stumble, just like the rest of us. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here at Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.